Hi, I'm Chris Christensen from the Bible Study Podcast. I'd like to invite you to a new series I've been doing since episode 34 on why bad things happen to good people and what the Bible has to say about that. So if you're interested in that, check us out, thebiblestudypodcast.com. Lifespring number 152, What's Behind the Door? Or What's This Life After Death Stuff? Hey there! How you doing? Having a good week? <laughs> Hello and welcome to LifeSpring. I'm Steve Webb, your host, and I'm so glad you're here with me today. Boy, oh boy, have I been studying for this show today. It even took an extra person to get the material together. Today is an Ask Steve Day, and we're going to get into some stuff that I've never talked about on the show before, ever. By the way, the opening promo there, that was a friend of mine, Chris Christensen. You may know him from the Amateur Traveler podcast. Yeah, it's the same guy. Chris is a really bright guy, and he's got a really good Bible study show. And if you're looking for some of that kind of programming, I highly recommend Chris's show. Well, before we get into the show... I told you that I learned some things about who was listening from the survey that I took last month, and I'm going to let you in on something right now that is probably going to change the way I do the show. One of the questions I asked was, are you a believer? Now, many of you know that my original calling for the show was that it was going to be primarily for people who had questions about the God thing, people who hadn't yet decided to make Jesus a part of their lives, seekers, to use a bit of a church term. I always said that I was really happy to have believers listening, but that they were not the primary audience. Well, as it turns out, believers are the primary audience, far and away. Now, that's not at all a bad thing. I've always said that that, that God is responsible for bringing listeners into the LifeSpring family, and if he brought you here and you're a believer, well, fantastic. And if you don't yet consider yourself a believer, don't be discouraged by this announcement. I'm still talking to you. But... Knowing now that most of you consider yourselves to be a follower of Jesus, I'm thinking very seriously about changing the way I do the show. I'm thinking about going a little deeper in terms of content and the amount of scripture that we look at. I'll still try to avoid the church lingo or Christianese as much as possible because I want everyone to understand very clearly what I'm saying, but I'm thinking we should get into more substantive discussions. Is that okay with you? Please give me your feedback. Let me know what you think about this. I want your thoughts. Steve.lifespring at gmail.com or better yet, call me toll free at 877-433-9091 and leave a message. Really, let me know what you're thinking. Now, today's show reflects the kind of show that I'm thinking that we should be doing. and So let's get to it. an email the other day from a listener by the name of Alex, and he said, Steve, I hear a lot about life after death, including purgatory, heaven, hell, limbo, and many other things. What does the Bible actually say about life after death, and where did the other ideas come from? Thanks in advance. Signed, Alex. Well, first of all, Alex, thank you for your question. It's a good one. I mean, after all, if there is no life after death, then what am I doing here? What's the purpose, and why are you listening? So the question is pretty fundamental. 
Part of the foundation of our belief system or faith is what that question is. So, the idea of life after death is not exclusive to Judeo-Christian thought, of course. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, all the world religions that I can think of have something to say about it. Alex, it's good that you asked me what does the Bible actually say, because I believe that the Bible is the final authority on the subject. I did a show on why I believe the Bible way back in the earliest Lifespring show, so I'm not going to go into any detail as to why I believe that, but let me just give you one scripture to hang on to, and that is 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. So I believe that the Bible is the final authority in just about everything. So it's good that you asked, what what does the Bible say about life after death? So what does it say? (laughs) Enough preamble, Steve. Let's get to it. Well, it says many things, of course, but let's start here. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 and 8 says, So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. Yes, we are fully confident, and we would rather be away from these bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. Paul is saying here that as long as we're in these bodies, that is, as long as we're alive, we're not in the presence of the Lord in heaven. Obviously, God is omnipresent, and so he's everywhere. Omnipresent, there's one of those words. That means God is everywhere. But we're not with him in heaven. We're not omnipresent. We can only be in one place at one time, especially being in these bodies that we happen to inhabit right now. But when we are, when Paul continues, he says, when we are away from these bodies, that is when we're dead, then we will be with the Lord. Life after death, you bet. But Steve, you might be saying, that passage doesn't say anything about life after we die. It just says that we'll be with the Lord. They crucified him, didn't they? Maybe that was just Paul's way of saying that we'll be dead just like he is. Well, my friend, if you're saying that, then you've forgotten about Easter. Jesus is not dead. He has arisen. He was resurrected. You see, Jesus took on the punishment that each of us deserves, and he sacrificed his life in our place. And then three days later, he showed his power over death by rising from the grave. He remained on earth for 40 days, the Bible tells tells us, and he was witnessed by thousands before rising to his eternal home in heaven. Did you know that? Thousands of people saw Jesus after he was crucified and died and came back to life again. Thousands of people. The resurrection of Jesus was a well-documented event. The Apostle Paul even challenged people to question eyewitnesses for its validity, and nobody was able to deny the truth. The resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith because Jesus was raised from the dead, and we can have faith that we too will be resurrected. But before that resurrection takes place, there are some other things that are going to happen. Let's take a look. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 states, And it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. What that says is, after we die, we are judged. We will give an account for our life. Now, here's a sidebar. Please note that the scripture there says, It is appointed unto men once to die, then the judgment. 
Now, while there are other arguments against reincarnation, this one right here is a pretty clear statement that you only go around once. Okay, back to the judgment part of the scripture here. It says, because appointed once to die, but after this, the judgment. Let's look at the judgment. When your body dies, you go into the presence of God. If you have rejected Jesus while you were alive on earth, you will be rejected when you stand before God. Matthew chapter 10, verse 33 says, But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 say, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Is there life after death? Absolutely. But there is a very specific way to that life. Now, this is not me saying this stuff. It's Jesus himself. Those were Jesus' words that made it very exclusive. There's one way to enter into eternal life in heaven, and that's through him. So we're going to be judged after we die. If we have rejected Jesus, we'll be rejected by God. If we've accepted Jesus, then we're invited in. So you may be asking, what, what, what is this I hear about eternal death? Well, eternal death is what happens if you are rejected by God because you have rejected Jesus. Eternal death is separation from God, and that is when you spend an eternity in hell. Now, that's part of the question that Alex asked, and we're going to talk about hell a little bit later, but for now, let's, let's move on. I've talked about eternal life here. And there's a lot more that could be said, but I don't want the show to last for over an hour today, so we'll we'll move along. So Alex also asked about some other issues related to life after death, so let's take a look at those. First off, he wanted to know about purgatory. Well, as you may know, purgatory is more or less a Roman Catholic doctrine, so I asked a very good Catholic friend of mine about it, and he sent me a pretty lengthy email, and I'm going to share it with you here. After I read it, I'll respond from my Protestant point of view. Is that fair? So, here's my Catholic friend's response to my question to him on the subject of purgatory. He says, Okay, I've had a chance to speak with some folks and do a little research on my own. I know that you wanted to know two things, where the idea came from and what Catholics believe. So, first, the history of the term purgatory. The idea of purgatory is a concept that the early church came up with in an attempt to explain various passages in the Bible where one must clean up to be in the presence of God. The idea isn't unreasonable. In Exodus 3, verse 5, God demands that Moses removes his sandals because he is standing on holy ground. It therefore makes sense that before any of us could stand in the presence of God, that we would clean up and purge ourselves of things that might be offensive. It's sort of like getting dressed up before you go to a big dinner. You do it to show respect for your host. And they looked at passages such as Matthew 12, 32, that says, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. I'm still reading his email. He continues, The early church wrestled with describing how the souls of the recently deceased were cleansed for the forgivable sins before they were ready to be in the presence of God. They looked at passages like 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15, 
And that says, For other foundation no man can lay, but that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be manifest, for the day of the Lord shall declare it, because it shall be revealed in fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work burn, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. My friend continues, The image of fire is used throughout the Bible as a force with multiple meanings. It is destructive, cleansing, an object that Moses can look directly at when in God's presence, the burning bush, and the Holy Spirit is described as coming down upon the disciples like tongues of fire. Therefore, the church chose to use the Latin verb perjure, that is to make clean or to purify, and thus purgation became the process by fire that happens after death to help present oneself to God. He says, what's interesting is that purgation is a verb, not a noun. Purgatory is a process, not a place where one goes to for a predetermined amount of time. The idea of purging as a noun is incorrect. It simply is a way to clean one's soul for the very awesome experience of standing in the presence of God. Purgatory today, my friend continues. Okay, at this point, my friend refers to a conversation that we had about this subject uh, earlier in the week. He says, okay, here's where I need to pick up where we left on Wednesday evening. You remember my original comments on the subject whereby I knew of the term, but said that it wasn't something that we as Catholic Christians spend too much time thinking about? Well, this is one of those issues where, although purgatory is written in the official catechism of the Catholic Church, it really isn't a part of the day-to-day teachings. So yes, purgatory is on the books, but I've never heard about it in a liturgy. I look at it this way, he says, I come from a certain state. According to written law, it is illegal to put tomatoes in clam chowder. It is also illegal to eat peanuts in church. Both are written into law, but just try to find a cop who will arrest someone for an infringement. Okay, well, first off, let me give my profound thanks to my friend for this great response. He took time from a very busy schedule to research this for me, and I really appreciate it. I owe you, buddy. Now, of course, there are differences between Catholics and Protestants. I've mentioned before that in my book, it's okay to have differences in those issues that are not central to the faith. Of course, the main point is the person of Jesus Christ. Who is he? Why did he come to planet Earth? What did he accomplish here? Those kinds of issues. The topic of purgatory is, in my mind, a peripheral issue. It's not critical to the faith. It's something that is on the side. Now, I'm going to have to disagree with the Catholic Church on the necessity to clean up before standing in the presence of Almighty God. Well, I can hear some of you now. <laughs> You're saying something like, Steve, how can you say that? God is holy and pure and without sin. How can you presume to say that you don't need to clean up before approaching his throne? Well, if you're thinking that, I'm glad you asked. Permit me to give a little background, if you would. I did a little digging myself and researching for the show, and I found that according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, purgatory is a place, and I'm quoting here from the Catholic Encyclopedia, it's a place or condition of temporal punishment for those who, departing this life in God's grace, are not entirely free from venial faults or have not fully paid the satisfaction due their transgressions, unquote. 
So what that is saying is that in Catholic theology, purgatory is a place that a Christian's soul goes to after death to be cleansed of the sins that had not yet been fully satisfied during life. So the question is, is this doctrine of purgatory in agreement with the Bible? Let's dig a little. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. What did that last thing say? We shall be saved from wrath through him, through Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, and this is a messianic prophecy. Isaiah, of course, is Old Testament, but this was a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Okay, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, it says, and by his wounds we are healed. To me, those verses say that all the wrath, all the punishment that I deserve was put on Jesus, and by his wounds I am healed. I am forgiven. The healing that is talked about there is a healing from sin. It's not a physical healing primarily. Now, I know a lot of you are going to get up in arms over that, but take the context. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Both of those have to do with sin. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. See, I deserve punishment, but I don't have to pay it. Jesus paid it. Because Jesus paid it, I was brought into peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. That means I'm saved from the consequences of my own sin. Because he took the punishment. Jesus suffered for our sins so that we could be delivered from suffering. To say that we also must suffer for our sins is to say that Jesus' suffering was not enough. To say that we must pay for our sins by cleansing and purgatory is to deny the sufficiency of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Now that's the way I see it. 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 says, And he himself is the propitiation or sacrifice for our sins. It doesn't say for some of our sins. It doesn't classify the sins. Nothing that I've read today classifies sins. It just says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Saved from wrath through him. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we're healed. He himself is the sacrifice for our sins. Nothing in any of that classifies sins. They all say there was sin. He took the punishment for him. I believe that the idea that we have to suffer for our sins after death is contrary to everything the Bible says about salvation. In this email to me, my friend made reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. 
This, I found out when researching the subject, is one of the proof texts used by the Catholic Church. Verse 15 in that passage says, If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Wow, you say. Sounds pretty much like purification or purging to me. Well, remember, you have to look at context and meaning when you study the Bible. This passage is an illustration of things going through fire as a description of believers' works being judged, not the believer himself. I looked up the word work, where it says in that passage, everyone's work will be put through the fire. The Greek word here is ergon, and translated, it means work, deed, or business. Our deeds are judged according to the context of this scripture. This is not about the purification of the believer. If our works are good quality, that is gold, silver, or costly stones, they pass through the fire unharmed, and we will be rewarded for those. But if our works are of poor quality, that is wood, hay, and straw, then they will be consumed by the fire, and there will be no reward. The passage does not say that believers pass through the fire, but rather that a believer's works pass through the fire. This verse refers to the believer escaping through flames, not being cleansed by the flames. So, again, this is a passage for believers, and it's about receiving rewards for our deeds on earth, or not receiving rewards. But it is not about salvation. It is not about whether or not you get into heaven. Very important distinction there. It's important to understand that what Jesus did on the cross for every believer was completely sufficient. Listen to this. In speaking about Jesus, Paul said in Hebrews chapter 7, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Now that was a lot of words. What Paul was saying there is that Jesus, as our high priest, does not have to offer daily sacrifices for himself and then for the people as did the Jewish priests of the day. Because what he did on the cross, he did once for all. No more sacrifice or penance is needed. Now, I understand that this flies in the face of Catholic thinking, but I have to say what I believe the Bible is teaching us. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. This says that there are no works, no deeds, nothing that I can do to earn salvation. It is the free gift of God because of what Jesus did, not because of anything I have done. If that is true before I die, it is certainly true after I die. There is no need for purging or cleansing after death. Listen, this is important. We are clean before God even now even though we are not yet perfect. We are seen as clean because of what Jesus did. Listen, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water by the word, 
Now get this, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now that is how we are seen if we are in his grace, which all believers are. We are already cleansed, pronounced not guilty. We're already forgiven. Our debt has been paid. Our freedom has been bought. The separation that sin brought between us and God has been eliminated, and we have been made his own for his own special purpose. We are holy and without blemish in the eyes of God because of what Jesus has already done. So, to sum it up, If we must in any sense pay for, atone for, or suffer because of our sins, well, that indicates that Jesus' death was not a perfect, complete, and sufficient sacrifice. Are you willing to say that? I'm not. For believers, after death is to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Because of the perfection, completion, and sufficiency of His sacrifice, we come immediately into the Lord's presence after death, fully cleansed, free from sin, glorified, perfected, and ultimately sanctified or made holy. So, that's my perspective, admittedly from a Protestant standpoint, and I obviously respectfully disagree with my Catholic brothers and sisters. I hope that we can agree to disagree agreeably on this. Okay, well, I think I'm going to continue this look at life after death next week. We've covered a lot, but Alex also asked about heaven, hell, and limbo. So not wanting this to become a two-hour-long show, let's move on, shall we? So next week, I'll continue with heaven, hell, and limbo. I recently had a conversation with someone who is a believer, but who is... um, just really feeling discouraged about his life. He's feeling like um, just nothing good ever happens, that uh, he's not achieving his dreams, shall we say. And uh, someone sent this to me that I thought really speaks to that, and I wanted to share it with you. It's called The Road of Life. At first, I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. He was out there sort of like a president, I recognized his picture when I saw it, but I didn't really know him. Later on, when I met Christ, it seemed as though life were rather like a bike ride, but it was a tandem bike, and I noticed that Christ was in the back helping me pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested we change places, but life has not been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. It was rather boring, but predictable, and it was the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the lead... He knew delightful long cuts up mountains and through rocky places at breakneck speeds. It was all I could do to hang on. Even though it looked like madness, he said, Pedal! I worried and I was anxious and I asked, Where are you taking me? He laughed and didn't answer, and I started to learn to trust. I forgot my boring life and entered into the adventure, and when I'd say I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. I gained love, peace, acceptance, and joy gifts to take on my journey well my lord's and mine and we were off again he said give the gifts away they're extra baggage too much weight so i did to the people we met and i found that in giving i received and still our burden was light i did not trust him at first in control of my life i thought he'd wreck it but he knows bike secrets 
knows how to make it bend to take sharp corners, knows how to jump to clear high rocks, knows how to fly to shorten scary passages. And I'm learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest places. And I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my delightful constant companion, Jesus Christ. And when I'm sure I just can't do it anymore, he just smiles and says, Pedal. <laughs> hey, we're all family here, right? That's okay, right? We're, it, it's safe here. <laughs> I saw this letter the other day. I wanted to share it with you. The other day I went up to a local Christian bookstore and saw a Honk If You Love Jesus bumper sticker. I was feeling particularly sassy that day because I had just come from a thrilling choir performance followed by a thunderous prayer meeting, so I bought the sticker and put it on my bumper. Well, as I was going home, I was stopped at a red light at a busy intersection, just lost in thought about the Lord and how good He is, and, well, I didn't notice that the light had changed. It's a good thing someone else loves Jesus because if He hadn't honked, I'd have never noticed. I found lots of people love Jesus. Why, while I was sitting there, the guy behind started honking like crazy. (laughs) And when he leaned out of his window and screamed, For the love of God, go, go! What an exuberant cheerleader he was for Jesus. Everyone started honking. I just leaned out of my window and started waving and smiling at all these loving people. I even honked my horn a few times to share in the love. (laughs) There must have been a man from Florida back there because I heard him yelling something about a sunny beach. (laughs) I saw another guy waving in a funny way with only his middle finger stuck up in the air. When I asked my teenage grandson in the back seat what that meant, he said that it was probably a Hawaiian good luck sign or something. Well, I've never met anybody from Hawaii, so I leaned out the window and gave him the good luck sign back. (laughs) My grandson burst out laughing. Why, even he was enjoying this religious experience. A couple of the people were so caught up in the joy of the moment that they got out of their cars and started walking towards me. I bet they wanted to pray or ask what church I attended, but this is when I noticed that the light had changed. So, I waved to all my sisters and brothers grinning and drove on through the intersection. I noticed I was the only car that got through the intersection before the light changed again, and I felt kind of sad that I had to leave them after all the love we'd shared. So I slowed the car down, leaned out of the window, and gave them all the Hawaiian good luck sign one last time as I drove away. Praise the Lord for such wonderful folks. Well, so like I said, we're all family here, right? All right, so what else is happening in my life? So last week I mentioned that I'm working on a new video project. That's true, and we are moving forward. And as a matter of fact, I've been to three, I think three different locations in the last week to do some shooting, and I'm going somewhere else tomorrow for more footage, Uh, maybe even a couple of places. So again, keep your eyes on Lifespring.tv, or better yet, just subscribe to the All Shows feed at LifespringPodcast.com, and that way you'll be sure to get the new stuff, because you never know which feed new things might come from. So just subscribe to the All Shows feed, you'll get it all. If you're new to subscribing and you you don't quite get it, that's okay. Drop me a line at steve.lifespring at gmail.com and I'll help you through the process. Just know that subscribing is free, doesn't cost you anything, and you're guaranteed to get every new show with no extra effort on your part. Last week I asked you to pray for James Cooper. I want to thank you for your continued prayers. I got an email from him uh, this past Saturday, and he says he's been getting slightly better, so that's good news. But 
just don't give up yet. Don't, you're not, your praying isn't done yet, friend. He's got a ways to go. So keep James in your prayers. The family here in my house is good. Everybody's healthy. The weather has finally begun to feel more like autumn, and that's a good thing. We had fog this morning and overcast for much of the day, and I'm just loving it. Oh, and I had a fantastic thing happen a couple of days ago. If you've been listening for more than a few months, you may remember that I talked about an external hard drive that I bought some, oh, I don't know, several months ago anyway. It was a Western Digital My Book, half terabyte. I had loaded a bunch of stuff on it, including some photos and even some of my archived podcasts and some other important business files. Two weeks after putting this thing into service, it died on me. <laughs> That's horrible. Uh, since it was brand new, I didn't. Uh, you, the only backup I had was on that. I didn't have backups of the backup, so that was dumb on my part. I admit it, but I thought, hey, this thing is brand new, no problem. I'll get to the backups later on. Well, that was a stupid thing to do. Well, anyway, this last weekend, I found a way to resurrect the drive. I used uh, some open source software called Test Disk. And uh, I'll put a, uh, a link in the show notes page to uh, help you out if you're looking for something like this. It's open source, so that means it's free, and it worked like a charm. It fixed the problem. I got the drive back, and I'm still in the process of backing up every important file on that drive to yet another external hard drive. I've, I've got over a terabyte of external storage available here, and uh, so I'm just working now on configuring things to make sure that everything's automatic and it just happens. So that's been my project over the last few days. Well, hey, you haven't phoned me yet, have you? Well, why not? Just pick up your phone and call me toll-free at 877-433-9091. And, of course, email is steve.lifespring at gmail.com. Remember, Jesus said, Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your age, your sex, or your station in life. Jesus asks you this, who do you say that I am? Life springs about answering that question and the question of how and why the answer can and does affect your life today. Hey, tell a friend about LifeSpring. Tell a friend about podcasting. Bring them into the fold. Get them listening on their computers. Get them hooked and then tell them how to make it all easier by subscribing. Until next time, I'm Steve Webb. This has been an In Touch Productions podcast. The best and the brightest, served up daily by the sharpest minds in content delivery, Podshow and Limelight.